0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Alistair Reid, and I'm the Executive Director of the Resolve Network and a senior expert for the Programme on violent extremism at the United States Institute of Peace. I'd like to welcome everyone to the sixth annual Resolve Network Global Forum and say a bit about Resolve's work and introduce today's event. The Resolve Network is a global consortium of researchers, research organizations, policymakers, practitioners, housed at the United States Institute of Peace. Resolve is committed to better research, inform practice and improve policy and violent extremism. Our research initiatives which span thematic and geographical areas, focusing on topics such as community-based armed groups, include commissioned, original research, capacity building efforts, and convenings to provide key insights on specific aspects of violent extremism, that enhance and inform preventing, countering violent extremism, research policy and practice. For more on our work, please visit our website and follow us on Twitter. Our work would not be possible without our ongoing partnerships with the US Department of State Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, at the Global Engagement Center, and the US Agency for International Development's Africa Bureau. We would like to specifically recognize and thank them for their consistent support, partnerships, and commitment to resolve, and for championing the importance of research and growing the evidence base for policy and programs. We're excited to host all of you today for the second public event in our annual virtual forum series for a discussion on important topics related to the role of community-based armed groups in sub-Saharan Africa. The event will include brief presentations, moderate discussions and an opportunity for you, the audience to ask your own questions for a moderated Q&A. We encourage you to ask questions to the speakers. You can submit your questions on the USIP event page where you're watching with this webcast on USIP's YouTube or on Twitter using the hashtag resolve forum The session moderator will incorporate some of the questions into the broader conversation with speakers. As a reminder, the event is on the record and we will be, and will be available on USAP's YouTube afterwards. For more results work on community-based armed groups, please visit our website. The research from these projects seeks to provide information necessary to better understand community-based armed groups and the role they play in the wider conflict ecosystems. I'm honored to introduce now my fellow USIP colleague Nic- Nicoletta Barbera, Senior Program Officer at USIP's Africa Centre, to give opening remarks and to set the stage for today's event. Before handing over to Nicoletta, on behalf of USIP and resolve, thank you again. We are looking forward to insightful conversation.
0: Thanks very much, Alistair. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. I am delighted to be joining you today for this important conversation on the roles that community-based armed groups play in conflict dynamics in Africa. My name is Nicoletta Barbera, and I'm a senior program officer in the U.S. Institute of Peace's Africa Center. In USIP's Africa Center, we work to advance programs and inform policy that is underpinned by evidence, experience, and learning. As an institute, USIP is concerned about today's conflict trends in Africa, which range from global health challenges to rising authoritarianism, and major power rivalries to competition for resources exacerbated by the effects of climate change. We see threats of violent extremism across the continent intensify state and community fragility and witness mounting social unrest due to citizen dissatisfaction with state services. It is within these complex conflict dynamics that we also see the prevalence of non-state actors who take up arms and resort to violence to achieve their political objectives we see community-based armed groups emerge as conflicts escalate or as key political processes loom. Members of these groups often motivated by a quest for justice and accountability can be deeply embedded within their communities and can take advantage of community vulnerabilities to benefit their cause. And that is what brings us to today's conversation in which we seek to demystify this critical and often overlooked set of actors in conflict dynamics. In today's event, you will hear from experts who will help us understand more clearly who these groups are and why they matter. Through case studies on Central Mali and on women's participation in these groups, the discussion will delve into community-based armed groups' motivations, interests, and on the multiple roles they play within conflict ecosystems. Panelists will also explore the potential that these community-based armed groups can contribute to state and community security. Lessons from USAP programs in Africa, such as the Women Preventing Violent Extremism and Justice and Security Dialogues programs, show that in the context of state fragility, deep mistrust often exists between government stakeholders, security actors, and community members. We have witnessed the impact that community-based dialogues among uh, among these sets of stakeholders can have in creating new avenues of coordination to mitigate shared threats, strengthen community resilience, and prevent violence. Women civil society leaders have worked directly with members of community-based armed groups to better understand their motivations and grievances as contributors to extremist acts. In response to this, our partners have crafted strategies that incorporate these lessons to reconcile divided communities and increase understanding, trust, collaboration, and empathy. While it is evident in peace building programs that community-based armed groups are often active contributors to violent conflict, I am grateful for discussions like the one we are having today in which we have the opportunity to expand our thinking around the multifaceted ways that community-based armed groups contribute to the conflict ecosystem overall for good or ill, resilience, or fragility. In our mission to better understand the relevance and roles of community-based armed groups, today's event strives to bridge the gap between research, policy, and practice, and will offer recommendations for both policymakers and practitioners. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Lauren Van Meter, who will moderate today's discussion. Dr. Van Meter, a former USAP colleague, is a leading expert on community resilience to violence, having conducted research and led field initiatives on building the strength and capacity of communities to resist violent actors and recover from the shock of violence. She currently leads the National Democratic Institute Peace, Security and Democratic Resilience Initiative.
2: Lauren, over to you, thank you. Thank you so much, Nicoletta. Good morning, good afternoon, and I think for some of our participants, good evening. Welcome to the Resolve Network Global Forum on community-based Farm groups. As Nicoletta mentioned, my name is Lauren Van Meter, and I will be moderating today's session on security dilemmas in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I am very pleased to have on this panel uh, Jakana Thomas, who is an associate professor at the University of California, San Diego's School for Global Policy and Strategy. Also with us today is Rita Liamori, a research associate at the the Clingendales Conflict Research Unit, as well as a senior fellow at the Policy Center for the New South. All of the panelists today have had a longstanding association with the terrific team at Resolve on a two-year and counting uh, research initiative on community-based armed groups. In many ways, we are the bookends uh, of this research effort. I had the privilege in 2019 of being asked to write a typology paper um, to define and to categorize community-based arms groups, a typology paper that we would all use um, later to validate and refine this work. The initial typology paper in that typology paper, I noted that a central feature of community-based arms groups is it essentially that they're they're shapeshifters? Um, that they are very very fluid uh, organizations that can transform very quickly from vigilante groups to community self defense forces, from government sponsored militias into uh, uh, criminal criminal actors. Um, and this this shape-shifting um, and this fluidity is, is largely in response to what is happening in the external environment, whether international actors are becoming more present, um, whether community-based armed groups are renegotiating their relationship with communities or with state actors, um, or what's happening to their resources resource base and these external shocks um, or or long-term stressors fundamentally change their internal operations and and how they're defined. um, So that community-based armed groups are defined by the type of violence they perpetrate, whether it's defensive or offensive um, and whom they exercise violence against. I think that it's very important, however, that we not only see study community-based armed groups as armed actors. Their very existence and purpose is a manifestation of state and of local politics, culture, and power. They are a reflection of the political dynamics in their region, as we see in Rita's work on Central Mali and in Jakana's work in West Africa and in Northern Mali. So this is gonna be one of the themes that we explore in the panel today with Jakana and Rita, which is how sea bags interact with and affect conflict ecosystems in the Sahel. I think, however, one of the most thrilling um, aspects of this research for me, as one of the original uh, members of the research cohort, is seeing how the follow-on researchers, like Jakana and Rita, have really advanced our thinking and understanding about community-based armed groups. We now understand that they are multidimensional governance, economic and justice actors. They are not just security actors, and this is another theme that we'll explore in the panel today. Jakana's research, duty, and defiance um, on women in community-based armed groups has really added another strong dimension to our understanding of CBAGs um, around intersectionality uh, of the complex identities of the women, youth, and men that support, serve, and demobilize from CBAGs. But mostly as I turn the floor over to Jakan and Rita for their presentations, I think this project, the most important aspect of this project is that it has elevated the importance of seeing and understanding community-based armed groups as very critical actors in these complex conflict environments. Their community roots, the fact that they are an extension of local politics, makes them distinct actors from insurgent and jihadist groups. And we really must and should increase our understanding of their of, of their uniqueness. Um, part of the issue, again, um, that we will explore in this panel. So with that, Jakana, I would like to turn it over to you for opening remarks. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for having me. And thank you, Lauren, for a great introduction. Um, So, just in the way of background, my research broadly focuses on political violence. And most recently, I have been focused on understanding gender dynamics in a variety of violent political organizations, including rebel groups, terrorist groups, and most recently, community based armed groups. Um, And so, while it's become increasingly clear over the last several decades that women play significant roles in um, rebel groups and terrorist groups, and other types of violent extremist organizations uh it is believed that women uh, play very minimal roles or are very minimal actors in community-based security groups and politics um however my research for resolve uh the report that lauren uh, just alluded to uh shows that armed groups uh, Uh, like armed groups and terrorist groups, sea bags uh, have quite a bit of women's participation and there's significant variation in what women do for community-based armed groups. Um, So for example, like Nigeria's force and their Nigeria's hunter groups, as well as Mali's Ganda Koi and their patriotic resistance forces, women actively take up arms in these organizations and maintain formal memberships within militias. Um, and like their male counterparts, we see that women are appear to be motivated to engage in violence um, in order to advance their own political interests um, at some, t- at some points, but other times, their narrow self-interest. Um, so in other words, women are fighting to secure their communities, to advance their political aims, but they're also fighting for their own survival. Um, and even when they're not Directly wielding weapons as formal members of these militias, they're participating by supporting, facilitating, and sanctioning the work that these militias are doing and that these sea bags are doing. Um, so, one of the main insights from the report is that women often do significant work within sea bags that is either unseen or underappreciated. Um, and moreover, women's work is often denied and diminished, sometimes by sea bag leadership, which makes it hard to see women's contribution. So another part of this project was really to kind of tease out some of these contributions that women are making to these sea bags. Um, And what I find is that whether they participate formally, in militias or informally, women are quite consequential to seabag politics. Um, And in some ways they play very central roles. Um, So again, for example, in the CJTF, women are used to apprehend, search, and interrogate female Boko Haram suspects. And this role is actually particularly important um, in Northeast Nigeria because it allows them to to fill a very specialized role that men can't necessarily fill, right? And so in this area um, where it is viewed Uh, as relatively improper for men to be in close physical contact with women they're unrelated to, this creates this niche role for women within these militias to to fill that, again, men can't necessarily um, do. Additionally, in Nigeria's Hizba, uh, women have the important role of policing other women's behavior and their morality and propping up community values. Um, Again, a thing that a a role that women are well suited for that men may be less suited for. Um, And even in when again, they're participating in in informal capacities, they're able to use roles as arbiters of morality um, to guide the behavior of their communities, which has important implications for conflict uh, and conflict behavior. And when they've participated in counterterrorism efforts, like I alluded to uh, a a few minutes ago, we've seen that they've improved military operations and outcomes, um, and and most importantly, I think, is that when women are present in these sea bags, we've also seen that they've had the capacity to change the behavior of these violent organizations in certain circumstances. Um, In particular, they have the capacity to quell the violence against women and civilians that are used by some of these sea bags, which is quite similar to the role that female peacekeepers have played. Again, I find it quite unfortunate that women's participation in these groups are as woefully understudied, which means that it remains poorly understood, and we don't really yet have a good grasp on how to leverage women's participation for some of the good things that the the international community is interested in. I'd also say that recognizing women's participation in the perpetration of community-based violence Suggest that we really need to have a more nuanced understanding of women's interest. Um, the policy community often likes to believe that integrating women into conflict processes will only have a single impact, and that is always to strengthen peace-building efforts. However, this narrative has to be complicated by the fact that women sometimes push male community members into violence, and in other uh, instances, they join in on the violence themselves. Um, and we find through this report and through other research that women and men seem to be motivated to participate in violence for very similar reasons. Um, So this suggests that women's roles and their interests are more complex than we often give them credit for, and more work needs to be done to understand why women are disposed to peace at some times, and why they choose violence at other times. And I'll expound on these particular remarks throughout um, our discussion today. And my final point here is that Seabag politics are intricately related to state-level governance efforts. Um, and so in my research, many women and men have joined these militia organizations and these bags to protect themselves from violence per- perpetrated by militants, but also by state militaries. Um, women often decide it's safer for themselves and their communities if they take community security provision into their own hands. Um, they find it... they they believe that it would be better if they could physically uh, provide for their own protection as opposed to waiting for a state that may never come or that if they come might prove more detrimental. Um, and so their participation in their grievances are often motivated by what women perceive as inaction or the negative actions of the state. Um, moreover, we know that states often collaborate with, support, or turn a blind eye to the violence that sea bags perpetrate. Um, and so if policymakers, practitioners, and stakeholders have an interest in quelling the local violence that includes seabag violence, they also have to find credible ways to address some of the reasons the groups emerge and the grievances on which these groups continue to recruit. Um, so that is to effectively manage and transform sea bags, if that is our interest. Uh, states have to do a better job of governance in ungoverned spaces. And so as long as these grievances exist, it's hard to imagine individuals, including women, demobilizing willingly. Um, a recent, uh, anecdote was that uh, a Dogon militia leader uh, suggested that if the state was going to try to disband their militia after some of their recent abuses, they also needed to take guns away from their perceived enemies. Um, So this suggests that as long as the state is viewed as incapable of addressing the security crisis in a satisfactory way, sea bags are going to be able to recruit and remain in the conflict game. Um, And finally, sea bags are often inextricably linked to local traditional political structures, um, which means they're not gonna be easy to disband without undermining community norms and traditions and all of the things that come along with that. And so this is gonna pose some significant challenges for DDR in a traditional sense, which again, I hope to expound upon um, throughout uh, my remarks today. Uh, Thank you. Jacana, thank you
2: um, for, Very thorough <laughs> remarks um, in the short amount of time you had. I'm very pleased now to also introduce Rita Liamori, um, who will present his opening remarks. In many ways, these opening remarks um, are Rita's report launch. Uh, Resolve Network just published two days ago um, Rita's report on Central Mali armed community mobilization and crisis, which I highly recommend to you all. But, Rita, I will turn it over to you for a a short summary,
4: thank you. Thank you, Lauren, and uh, thanks to Resolve Network for having me, and uh, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here today, um, even virtually. Um, I would not, uh, not speak too much about my reports, but I highly recommend that, that you read it and come back to me with any questions you might have. <laughs> but I would just uh, very briefly, when we talk about community, uh, we automatically talk about identity. Which has become a major uh, point of debate uh, in recent years during the conflict on the Sahel in general, and in particular, recent, recent years in Central Mali. And that's why uh, I was very interested to look at Central Mali as a case study because it's, it's a very interesting case, as we know today, is the epicenter of violence in Mali, not anymore in the more Northern Mali as it was um, in the previous decade. Uh, to to speak specifically about Central Mali and and when we talk about the identity, again, when we look at the history of the use of identity in Mali, this is nothing new. Historically, identity have been used uh, for to resolve or to resolve the conflicts at the expense of other identities. And this has been used not only by armed groups, but also by the state. Uh, without going into the examples, I, I think the, exo- the example of uh, the divide and Tuareg Songhai communities in the north, uh, as well as the creation of recently the, the 2016-17 of the Dogan militia, which was backed by the state until later on the, the, the state decided to, to distance itself uh, after the, the, uh, the Dogan militia committed several acts of atrocities. Um, Another example, and and also more recently, uh, how jihadist groups also started to use identity as a driver, as a way to gain power, influence, and control. Um, And again, not only armed groups are using identity, but also the state. And I think there is enough written and well-documented all these examples. I think there, there is enough research, enough documentation about, about that. But to speak about today and, and how Katibat Messina in central Mali used the, the, the identity and the card of, of playing the Fulani communities, Um, This started, uh, just brief on on, on the background, this started in 2013, 2014, when Fulani communities were uh, victims of banditry, of uh, mishandling, mismanagement of natural resources, and there were no fair um, resolutions to address their concerns. And jihadist groups came in and provided some of the solutions, provided protection, provided support to, to the Fulani the communities perceived themselves as victims. That being said, when we speak about today, it doesn't mean necessarily they are only recruiting and integrating into the ranks Fulani communities. They are also looking into Dogan communities. They are recruiting from Dogan communities and more recently, um there was even an audio where um where a high-ranked jnm leader um went as far as saying dogon are more more genuine muslims than some of the fulanis and this is a very interesting to to see like how uh, how he went that far to to so that he can gain control but also to to gain support from dogon communities but also this, this this comes at the time where the GNM, which is Al-Qaeda affiliated group, also fighting with the Islamic State affiliated group in Central Mali and in Mali and in the Sahel in general. This was a way of trying to contradict what the Islamic state is trying to do, trying to say that the Dugans are not Muslim, they are not part of our community, but GNM said otherwise. They, they said, they said no, they are also a Muslim community and that it is used, so the identity and also the perception are being used so they can recruit um, in, in their ranks. Um, it is also fair to say that today, because of the taxes that the t- tactics uh, that Katiba Masina and GNM in general managed to weaken the Islamic State in Central Mali and continue to have a strong grasp on, on, on control in Central Mali, than the Islamic State, um, Islamic State remains like controlling and have small cells throughout Central Mali, but Katiba Masina remains the main uh, the main actor in Central Mali. And I will, um, I will stop here, but I'll, I'll, without going further and with details, and I'll let Lauren, if you have any questions, I'll be more than happy to, to expand on
2: Thank you, Rita. Um, So this first part of this panel, um, Rita and Jakana and I agreed would really focus on the conflict ecosystem in the Sahel and how sea bags are both uh, affecting that conflict ecosystem and being affected by it. Um, And so Rita, following up sort of on that thread of thinking and and the remarks that you've just made, um, as you do mention, there's some very interesting contradictions in your report around CBAG identities in Central Mali. Um, You've noticed that the Katiba Messina, um, the local affiliate of JNIM in Central Mali is recruiting among the Fulani groups. But one of the more interesting parts of your report is that they are oscillating in that recruitment between recruiting based on an ethnic identity versus recruiting on a jihadist identity. Um, can you talk a little bit about what uh, wh- what important alliances are they trying to maintain um, by recruiting along dual identities? Why is this balancing important? And more importantly, I think one of the more interesting aspects of the reporter, why do some Falani groups reject Katiba Messina and JNIM regardless of its appeal uh, along dual identity lines?
4: Yeah, um, I will try to answer just questions um, by saying that GNM right now through the Katibad Messina we can say that is one of the most active GNM brigades, units, and not, not only in Mali, but I think in, in, in the Sahel because of how much control they have over the community, over uh, the, the central money. And this thanks to the alliances that they built with local communities. Mainly, it started off with the Fulani communities, as I mentioned, uh, by coming in and presented themselves as the protectors. We are here to protect you. They recruited, they trained, they armed, um, Fulani communities, so they could protect themselves against Tuareg, Dogon, and Bambara um, militias and armed bandits in in central Mali, and they they also provided them with um, they empowered certain. Fulani communities that were marginalized and controlled by certain Fulani elites that were backed by the state. And so they give them that power, they empower them, and they built these alliances that now are becoming really difficult to break. And that's why they continue to expand, they continue to exercise control in central Mali, and where the states, where the Malian states and international partners are having difficulties to have similar type of access. And so Jan, Katiban Massina are aware of how important to continue to have those alliances with Fulani communities. But simultaneously, they are also have been providing protection to Dogan communities that are opposed to the Dogan militia, Dena and Ambasogo. So they they are exploring other opportunities. So while they're, they're strengthening the existing alliances with Fulani communities, they are expanding and exploring other alliances so they can continue to expand. And this has been proven to be uh, very successful in Central Mali. And some of the Dogan members have managed to even achieve high ranks at the local level of Katiba Masina and JNM in Central Mali and that's that's what it's given them this this uh, this power in, in, in the region um, the the other the, the, the other question about why some of the fulanis re- so reject of course you will always have not all communities are supportive and of the of the of the uh, the, the ideology and the the mission of katsiban messina so you have some uh, fulani communities dogon communities bambara communities that are reject the ideology of GNM, the presence of Katibar Messina. But look what happened. A lot of members from Fulani and other communities have been executed and targeted by GNM who are opposed to the presence of GNM or Katibar Messina in Central Mali or they either have been targeted or they have left and they have been just forced to displace and be located into, uh, located either at the key centers, key towns in central Mali, or to, to the capital in Bamako. So that provided the space for GNM to come in and establish themselves. With those that are willing to support them, and personally, I, throughout my research, I'm struggling to identify as many uh, Fulani communities that are opposed to a GNM in, in Central Mali. Uh, I hope I answered uh, some of some of your question and thank you.
2: You did. Uh, thank you, Rita. Although I, I do have a, a, a follow-on question um, around. Uh, the Dagan, Um as you've mentioned, um, there's been a big effort by Katiba Messina um, and JNIM to recruit Dagan, um even appealing um, or shaping Dagan identity um, in order to enhance that recruitment. But what what tensions do you in, anticipate in trying to manage Fulani and Dagan, um, uh, units within <laughs> within this larger conglomeration, given sort of the historical tensions between the two groups.
4: I, it, sometimes we we think that the identity is the only factor, but at the same time, I think a lot of, the a lot of Duganda joined not necessarily because of identity; they joined because of conviction, and because they are they have that conviction, they are more important to the to Katiba Messina, Katiba Messina's expansion in central Mali, then than the identity. Uh, so I anticipate, and we have seen tensions among Dogan communities themselves, because we are seeing some of the Dogan, even if it's a smaller number that joined uh Ben Messina, it's still relevant because, as I mentioned, because they are joining because of convection, and that is more dangerous and more vital to Kati Messina than than just recruiting, um, members who are joining because of other reasons, because of economic or reasons, or because of, uh, violence and access to weapons. So those joining with convection are really that we are seeing, and that's what is going to be. Um, it's going to be one of the key drivers for Katiba Messina to continue to expand and exercise its power in, in, um, in central Mali, And that's what it's given it's also an advantage compared to the Islamic States uh, in greater Sahara, which continues to see the Dogon as non-believers, as non-Muslim
1: community.
2: Thank you, Rita. Um, Before I move on um, with questions for the panelists, I would really like to encourage our many audience members um, to put in your own questions. Um, we have 30 minutes reserved uh, for you all with our panelists, um, and we would love to see uh, you given an opportunity to ask the questions that are important to you. So please fill up the chat. Um, thank you, Jakana, um, I'd like to turn to you. Um, you know, part, we we studied a bit how this conflict ecosystem is is driving identity shifts among community-based armed groups. Um, But I'd like to turn a little bit to how identity shifts within community-based armed groups. Um, And the conflict ecosystem in the Sahel um, is rapidly and deeply affecting men and women and their traditional roles in communities. Rita's research has talked about how the most marginalized of young men, the Fulani, are finding empowerment in being men with guns. This is redefining masculinity, leadership, and authority on the ground. And his report also describes how women play a powerful role in Central Mali, um, given their linkages, sort of their familial linkages um, as wives, uh, mothers, um, sisters um, of, uh, and daughters of armed fighters. But Rita also says that women's roles in the conflict are, as you have put it, thus far hidden and need to be studied farther. Based on your research um, on these hidden roles, what are the likely roles that women are playing in Central Mali, Northern Mali? What does it mean for the local conflict ecosystems? And how do we really need to elevate our, and why do we need
3: to understand, uh, elevate our understanding of women's roles? Thank you for the great questions. Um, so, I think we can generally say that women play, again, a diverse set of roles in sea bags. And so, drawing Uh, I guess, inferences from the Northern Mali case, we've seen that in some instances, women formally joined some of the militias. um, And those are especially in communities where women's roles were less circumscribed. Um, However, in more conservative communities, we've seen less formal women's participation. Um, So we didn't see women join armed groups in Islamist uh, armed Islamist groups or in the Tuareg insurgent movements, um, nor in the the, uh, self-defense militias uh, to a great extent. Um, but that hasn't necessarily meant that they were absent from these movements or that they were, that they could be considered non-participants, right? Um, so Tuareg women from uh, particularly conservative communities have used their leverage over younger members and their families, younger men in their families and communities to influence these uh, conflict dynamics and to push their own preferences for peace or for conflict. Um, and so due to uh, the respect for elders um, in, in Mali and the so the ger- to, gerontocratic norms. Um, older women are generally able to influence juniors, uh, younger women, but in some cases, even younger men. Um, and so the, given that Molly's median age is about 16, and youth are increasingly being recruited by violent actors, this kind of gives women, especially elder women, a unique space to influence what's actually happening on the ground. And so in some cases, this is going to mean that women are putting intense pressure on their communities to push for peace. However, in some cases, we've seen that it means that they're sanctioning and supporting local violence. Um, And so my work with Hillary Matfis is examining this question of why we're seeing some women pushing for peace at certain institutions. Instances. other times they're, completely unengaged or disengaged and other times they're they're pushing for violence. Um, And so I think as I noted earlier, we can't always take women's preferences for peace as given, right? we can't necessarily say that where women are involved, whether formally or informally, that is going to have a positive impact in peace. Um, And outside of Bali, we've seen very similar dynamics where in uh, conservative communities, women are leveraging traditional roles in their families and in their communities to influence conflict, sometimes for peace and sometimes uh, for, for conflict. Um, in, in Hillary's report for resolve, she talked about that a lot in East Africa. Um, participate in these conflicts by directly pressuring males within their uh co- communities to engage in conflict or peace building um, by directly participating in tradi- linked traditional political structures so for example um secret initiation societies often have links to sea bags and their participation in these initiation societies can give them insight and uh, leverage in uh secu- in these security roles um and sometimes by throwing their support bus- behind specific conflict actors. Other times we've seen them participate by leveraging interpersonal connections with other women, right, and so that is to glean information, to press uh, women to get their relatives to engage in violence or not engage in violence. Um, and again, as I mentioned, sometimes this is to directly perpetrate violence on behalf of sea bags. Um, and so, again, the research that I've done and that other people are doing uh, is suggesting that even where we're not seeing women directly, or we're not we're not lo- we're not necessarily looking in the places that they are, right? And so, even when we don't, an active can take on a variety of roles. That may mean picking up a weapon, but it may mean pushing somebody else to p- pick up a weapon or put that weapon down. Um, and 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 I, my guess is uh, in central Mali, these are the roles that women are taking on. Um, and we know that these are the roles that they did take on in Northern Mali for sure.
2: Thank you, Chikana. Um So a, a little bit then just of a, a quick follow-on question for both you, Chikana and Rita, um, which is that, you know, if we think, uh, we have had a lot of thinking about how do we secure a peace in Mali? Um, and and the recognition that this is gonna take both top down and bottom up approaches. Um, and that uh, local peace accords are gonna be have to be supported by a greater state presence. Um, but if you think of these local peace processes and these peace accords um, that that need to happen, um, and you think of the fact that uh, many uh, power relationships right now are being transformed on the ground, um, you, kinda, you've talked about women's power relationships that have been transformed on the ground um, as a result of, of armed groups. Rita, you've talked about young men. Um, how... How are these new power dynamics um, going to affect um, our ability to uh, uh, form and sustain local peace processes? So so how are we going to have to take into account these new power relationships on the ground if we are going to sort of craft any or support any locally crafted peace process? Rita, do you want to?
4: Um, sure. Um, no, I think, I think you have turned on a very important point. I, uh, th- th- these areas that where where the state is almost absent or it would exist through certain um actors like traditional authorities for example and, and as chakana mentioned earlier like ungoverned space i i mean i i am afraid to disagree i mean it's not ungoverned but it's governed differently it's governed by the this actors that remain there not everyone left not all the population, not all the authorities left, but what we are seeing, we are seeing that these authorities are negotiating and deals with whoever is in power, either be it um, a community-based armed groups or jihadist groups or other types of, of uh, armed groups. So they are negotiating their existence so, they, so that they can move on with their lives under these conditions because they are somewhat lost faith on the, to, no, 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 the state because they have been in this situation for, for for quite a while. They need to go back to their economic activities. They have to go back to educating their children. And we are seeing that they are negotiating deals where they allow the schools to reopen under a certain, certain uh, conditions. They are allowing women to go back to their economic activities, to go to the to their fields to work, to go to the market to conduct trade and sell their um, their spices or dry fish, or their their economic. So they can continue to generate income. Um, in some instances, also providing health support services. And on top of, as you mentioned in the opening remarks, it's not just about providing security, but we are seeing um, these other uh, types of governance provides by, provided by by the. Different uh, sea um, So, so what this, what does this do? Is making it really, really difficult to the states when they return, uh, who they're going to talk to, and also how they are going to perceive the communities that managed or to negotiate to negotiate deals with jihadists or other sea They are going to be perceived as. Um, Regular population, or they're going to be perceived as as uh, as uh, traders, uh, and we are risking here. If it's not done appropriately, we are risking of seeing acts of, uh, of, of uh, extrajudicial killings, arrests um, against those individuals because they are perceived as supporting and interacting and working with with jihadist groups and other sea So, uh, so those deals are being negotiated so they can continue to exist. Um, under these difficult circumstances. And the return of the state is going to be very, very difficult and it's going to be really messy um, going forward.
2: Thank you, Rita. So the caution that instead of a peace process, we're gonna see more of the retributive violence um, if we're not careful in how we conceive of or or support support these local efforts. Just I'd really like to open the question up to you as well um, in terms of how these shifting local power dynamics um, need to be considered in a possible uh, local and even nationally supported peace process.
3: Yeah. So uh, just to say, I don't disagree with you at all, Rita. There's no disagreement here. Actually, um, when I mean ungoverned, I meant I meant to imply ungoverned by the state, which has enabled and emboldened local sea bags and local uh, actors to fill what are perceived as power vacuums where the state is not providing security and governance. Um, and one of the potential uh, hitches, the concerns here, is that where these sea bags are recruiting um, along ethnic lines or along identity lines, those who are providing the power and the governance have uh, governance and the security end up having the power. And this might be at the expense of those who are not providing governance and power. And again, when these are along um, identity lines, this might mean that enabling this type of hybrid security to take root where just groups are uh, protecting themselves means that we're just uh, per- further perpetuating inequality and we're incentivizing groups to try to vie for power. Um, and so all that to say is that I, I think w- without focusing on the role of the state and where the state is, it, is relatively absent or is allowing these actors to fill these uh, spaces, we're further perpetuating this, kind, or the state is further perpetuating this kind of violence um, and we've seen seabags form morph and grow in response to this kind of absenteeism or the state refusing to provide security and other aspects of governance um and so obviously one solution to that would be that if it was uh, an imp- if it was uh, of interest to uh the international community the policy community to decrease some of this violence, um, they would also need to remove the need for these groups to operate, right? And, and in order to do that, the state would need to have a a, a much stronger role in these places. Um, but I'll, I'll speak specifically more about how uh, this, in- influences bottom-up approaches. Um, and I think there's wide acceptance that bottom-up approaches to peace-building um, are, are preferable to those top-down approaches. And these need to have uh, community buy-in because uh, these are community conflicts, you know? Um, and so I, in some cases, it is really important to have, Oh, actually it is full stop, really important to have women's buy-in in these conflicts and women's participation in these peace-building efforts um, because in aggregate, women have been shown to push for more equitable and durable solutions to conflicts that typically move beyond just military concerns and address inequalities um, uh, on gender lines, but also in cases uh, also along ethnic ethnic lines. Um, other studies have also showed that women are more willing to work across the aisle to kind of solve conflicts. Um, and so in Mali, we have seen women from civil society, armed groups, and government come together to try to push for greater implementation of the peace process, to, tr- uh, to push for greater role for gender in peace processes. And we've seen similar types of initiatives at the local level. Um, and so I would say there are potential benefits of including women in both of these top-down and bottom-up approaches uh, for peace building. But again, it's important to note that not all women are gonna necessarily push for the peaceful outcomes and uh, work, uh, uh, my own work and work from uh, scholars like Millie Lake and Marie Berry show that adding any woman from any background to a peace process is not necessarily gonna yield the same kind of outcome. right? It's important to understand that interests and incentives for different women from uh, specific communities and backgrounds um, are going to be uh, central to what they're pushing for, as spoils from peace are not necessarily going to benefit people from all communities and all uh, backgrounds equally. Um, and this is because women like men are self-interested actors, and sometimes their gender is going to be front and center and the most important cleavage. But in other cases, it's going to be religion, it's going to be it's gonna be ethnicity. And so when we include certain women in these uh, peace processes, they're going to be pushing for um, provisions or provisions that are along those lines as well. Um, and so as I, I'm sure I'll mention at some other point, it's really important to not just think about including a woman or a couple of women, but that we are very considerate of who these women are, what their backgrounds are, and what kind of incentives they have to kind of push for a more equitable piece. Um, because without attention to those things, we're replicating some of the inequalities that are already there. And if we're not gonna make the situation necessarily better by, by you know um, this attention to gender and by, being gender inclusive.
4: Lauren, if I might add very quick, I think on, on your question, you talked about, so you asked about youth. Um, I think we 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 tend to focus on youth, that they are the problem sometimes, but also like let's not forget the influence that elders have on youth. That I think that point, I, I just wanted to to remind ourselves, like you know, something that's um to keep to keep in mind.
2: No, terrific point, Rita. Um, If we're talking about intersectionality, we should include all identities um, and the older generation um, should definitely be included in that, so thank you for that. Um, You know, we've sort of really explored almost every dynamic of this conflict ecosystem um, in Central Mali and the Sahel, except for perhaps one important actor in there, which is the international community. We often think of community-based armed groups as as sort of, uh, you know, receiving their identity from the community, but we know from all of our research that the presence of international actors can shift um, that identity. Um, Probably one of the the most profound effects it's had in the Sahel is the erosion of the influence of traditional um, uh, leaders, uh, Rita, that older generation that you're talking about that often played a very important role in constraining um, community-based armed groups. Um, Can you talk a little bit about both, Jakana and Rita, how how we do no harm, um, that we're already seeing the erosion of some of the constraints on armed groups, um, most likely because of our activities in the the area? And can you talk a little bit about what do no harm um, for the international community would look like, especially vis-a-vis
3: community-based armed groups?
4: You go first this time, Jakana. Sure.
3: Yes, uh, so as you you mentioned uh Lauren we're seeing uh the erosion of a lot of traditional institutions and traditional authority which uh wasn't often had an important conflict resolution mechanism attached to it. Communities were able to resolve um uh, a variety of Contentious issues through these mechanisms that existed through uh, through through these institutions, but as they're becoming less salient and less important, as they're being ignored, as they're being threatened by violent actors, we're also going to see uh, fewer ways in which the traditional authorities are able to solve conflicts in the way that they used to. Which means that they're going to have to. they're going to have to be new ways to, um, uh, to solve these conflicts, or there has to be a way to, um, reinforce in some ways, traditional, traditional leadership and authority. Um, and I think in, from my report, one of the ways that this is uh, disadvantaged women, which I believe also disadvantages communities is that women often have, um, some, carved out uh, role within traditional authorities and traditional uh, political structures and institutions, which allow them in some places to engage in conflict resolution, to guide the morality of the community. In some ways, it allows them to um, place constraints on their neighbors, on community members, on the youth. Um, And as these institutions become less important, women's roles are uh, minimized as well. And their ability to engage in and like engage in civic engagement um, and engage in politics will also be lessened. And so I think um, the, the risk of, um, I guess, eroding this traditional these traditional institutions is, is manifold, but it has specific impacts on women's ability to engage in politics um, and, and, and to constrain their, their communities in, in ways that I've seen through in other sea bags. Um, Rita, would you like to expound?
4: Yeah, sure. I, I think first to to uh, to avoid doing any harm, I think it's to not get involved with local actors, especially CBACs. Because I think that's number one. It's avoid at all costs getting involved uh with with these actors. Um second, I think we need to do more uh, of investigations and accountability. We, we have to demonstrate to the local population, the international community has to investigate and hold accountable, those responsible for uh, atrocities, um, either, either be it for security forces, state actors or members of this or the We have to send some sort of message to local communities, local population, so the so the the, the international community and the and the national governments so and the, the state itself can gain some sort of trust uh, from for from the local communities and not make the, the matter worse. Um, which, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, the, the continuous using of identity as a way of weakening another opposition, it's just gonna continue to uh, this, this endless cycle of, of, uh, of violence. And I, I think this, are some of the examples, when, when you see um, in Central Mali, that, that we are seeing in Central Mali, like security forces that are supported, trained, by international community are responsible for some of these atrocities. And that's that's something that local population are increasingly becoming aware of, and therefore we are going to see um, more resistance um, towards international communities intervention than than actual welcoming them. I hope I provided some insights.
2: No, I, I think that's terrific, um, both of you all, in terms of some wonderful words of caution to the international community. Um, I'm just going to head quickly sort of to the last uh, area, uh, or one of the areas that I know, Chicana and Rita, you had really wanted to talk about was just how does all this rich research uh, turn into policy and practice recommendations? And I would like to turn, um, Rita, to 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 really press you a little bit more on this issue of accountability. Um, you said in your report that you would recommend a sequencing. Um, in the Sahel, um, in terms of moving towards a peace process, that DDR and SSSR reform may be too premature, that accountability, as you mentioned, must come first. But there is an interesting issue around accountability and sea bags in the sense that sea bags take their values and in many times their direction from the local community. And so if we wanna think of accountability in terms of uh, decision-making and authority, how do we hold sea bags accountable when those authorities and those values perhaps came
3: from the community themselves?
4: Um, thanks for pushing me for, for and, and that's really hard question. Um, I just, I just don't see it personally. I don't see that the, we are at the stage on the, the, this level of the conflicts in central Mali, especially that we are at the level where we can, uh, see these communities are unified and they're going to accept seeing certain members of communities from either from other communities being integrated. Um, into security forces or being um, not being uh, held accountable and we, whether we will like it or not, and unfortunately because we are seeing that we have seen this historically, there are going to be some advantages given to one identity at the expense of, of another. And as long as we are not at the point where everyone is being identified as Malian or as Nigerian or as Burkinabe, we are going to continue to see this, this differences and this, uh, this, um, this injustice and, and perception uh, towards different communities, and that's not. Then it's just going to result further damages among, um, not damages, but we gonna We are going to have security forces that are. Going after different interests rather than protecting the local population, and that's what I'm afraid of. Because at the moment we are not we are not at that level, at that stage where we can uh, we can forgive and reintegrate and reintegrate those members into uh, security forces. Uh, when we are still uh, another example, I, it's frightening that certain community member of the communities they don't even know what the Malian flag looks like. And that's how severe and that's how uh, distanced some of these communities from from the reality and from the state. And as long as we are not at that level, uh, I think any efforts of this, uh, we we have to be realistic, things that look really good on paper are not necessarily going to be looking to be the solution uh, for, for the situation on the ground.
2: So Rita, you've talked about accountability in terms of uh, atrocities committed between and among communities. And even if you look at Dana Asambigu, atrocities committed against their own community. But there's another important um, set of violence that's going on right now um, as a result of sort of this vigilante violence that's breaking out in central Mali. And that's... the high rise and increased rise in gender-based violence and sexual-based violence um, and I'd, I'd like to talk about accountability in terms of that um, in the sense that you know we don't often bring gender-based violence into the accountability process and Jakana I'd like to ask you you know you've talked a lot about the different roles that women play in armed groups um, affirmers of men's participation, informants, et cetera. And if we think about these different roles that women play, um, how could that be brought to a process of accountability around gender-based or sexual-based violence, which I I think needs to be included in the accountability equation?
3: Yeah, so I think that um, as Rita suggested, maybe they're not at a place where um, where DDR is exactly what um, is gonna happen in the the immediate near future. However, I do believe that there is a place for local constraints to be placed on these actors and that are derived from the community. Um, And these these communities have always been diverse and they've always had ways of uh, managing and being uh, in in peaceful coexistence that I think, the the maybe what needs to happen is that there needs to be a return to those uh those the previous status quo where societies could uh, coexist. And one of the ways in which they did that was societies and uh, communities policing themselves. So not only policing outside actors, but policing the activities of their community members. And this is where I believe that women actually have played and can play a greater role, especially as it pertains to sexual exploitation, abuse, gender-based violence, and sexual violence against um, women uh, in their communities and outside of their communities. And so in Seabags, Um, Nigeria is a good example. We've seen increasing attention played on uh, sexual exploitation and abuse perpetrated by the uh, military and also sea bags, including uh, the CJTF. And women have been increasingly vocal about about this type of violence. And so this has spurred protest that has gained international coverage in Nigeria, in Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali. But we've also seen specific actions that women have taken to kind of push against this type of violence so this rising tide of violence um So women in the CJTF and the VGN have noted that their participation within these militias have actually helped to deter abuses among their ranks. Um, And in the VGN, women have received special training, which has allowed them to spot and deter sexual and gender-based violence, again, among people within their ranks. And so just by being there, kind of in the way that uh, we have seen, again, with peacekeeping forces, where when women are among the peacekeeping forces, we see reduced reports of uh, violence and actual reduced incidents of violence, there are, um, there's preliminary evidence that this also happens when women are within these militias um, and they are able to constrain their own comrades. Um, I've also, I could also say that um, in Mali women have, uh, certain communities have put in place um, uh, mechanisms to deter or or to, I guess, report and escalate instances of sexual and gender-based violence where where that put women in the center, in the forefront as local points. And so when they see these types of uh, activities taking place, or when they see these atrocities being committed, the women are trained to go to local authorities and escalate these types of abuses. But this doesn't always happen, right? And in a lot of communities, the stigma around sexual abuse um, and gender violence, which makes some women uh, reluctant to report it and reluctant to take any action on it. And so I think there needs to be a two-pronged approach. The first approach is possibly giving interested women, and I'll say interested women, training in how to spot these types of abuses and how to deter them. Um, And another approach is having, uh, I guess, uh, changing the norms around um, uh, acceptance, uh, of sexual abuse and sexual violence and violence against women more broadly. Um, and so if the norms around silence around these types of things changed, we might expect more women to take on more active roles in trying to deter this type of violence.
2: Thank you. Gikano. So some very innovative and provocative recommendations there, which I think build on our theme of of local local people um, managing and being involved with uh, conflict resolution and conflict management. Um, I would love to turn this portion over to the audience now. Again, we do have some questions from the audience. We would love more questions from the audience um and so please um the usip team is standing ready to move your questions from chat uh into my mouth <laughs> so that i can ask our panelists um uh the the pressing issues that you would like to hear about um so i would like to start um with a, a really great question from our audience, and I think one that we uh, have have actually addressed um, in our uh, community-based uh, uh, armed group research, um, which is around sort of the historical presence um, of uh, of, uh, of the historical precedents and community-based armed groups. And the question is um, to both of you, how does colonial, the heritage of colonial governance, how has it impacted still today the security governance landscape um, across regions and communities? And how has it shaped relationships between state and non-state actors? And and we really do see that with community-based armed groups, um, which are not a new phenomenon in this region. Um, and then the audience has really asked you. You guys are both uh, deep experts in particular regions um, in Africa, that you also provide concrete examples. Um, so, could Rita maybe you uh, start us off with, you know, the the colonial impact um, on this, the the conflict ecosystem and sea bags um, that we're still seeing today.
4: I'm going to be honest and say that's something that I have not looked at. So I have not looked at the the how the colonial um, and the history of the, especially the French, and it has an impact on the emergence of of C-backs. Um but we're looking at it today i i don't see i don't see the impact i don't i don't see the relationship of trying to make the connection between the colonial times and today uh the situation today it's it's not it's not the result of what's what's been the the the, the impact of colonial times but i think it's more of what is the situation um how the situation evolved in recent decades uh how national and regional states managed the, their domestic issues, how the governance structures exist in some of these areas of the conflict. Um, the example of Mali, since the 1990s, how the Malian government managed the 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 Tuareg the, the issue in northern Mali, how they managed, manage, continued to manage it all the way to the early 2013, 14, and 15. I think it's been the same by trying to weaken one side by create by supporting one side, and that's that's why we we are continuing to see this more community sort of community based armed groups and based on identity they are either tuareg or even a faction within the tuareg uh or either the, the arabs in in the timbuktu region and now we are seeing this in the past 6 years in central mali the fulani and the dogon and bambara and we are seeing this trend as well now in tillaberi and tawa regions of 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 niger the emergence of more local self defense militias so i i think this is more of the, the what it's the result of how things are being handled in in these areas in recent years, but not, I don't see, at least from my end, the, the relationship between what's happening now and colonial times in, in terms of the sea bags, the, the creation and the emergence of sea bags. Chikana,
2: would you like to add to that? I know you've looked at West Africa, Northern Mali,
3: yeah so I think this is a very very difficult question to answer because again I will say this is not my specific area of expertise Um, but just thinking about it for the last couple of minutes I would imagine that it's important to really think about the colonial roots uh in Africa especially in Mali um, because it's informed the the interventions that are in place today right the French are in part feeling responsible for what's happening in uh, Mali because of the colonial ties um, and so i mean I, I guess the if i were to think about pretend potential research to do on this topic it would be to understand how um the french colonial administration um emboldened specific groups um and for example how their dealings with the tuareg it, during colonial times, influenced uh, their cl- uh, Tuareg claims for uh, self-determination and how it influenced their willingness to align with specific groups in society. And so, I mean, I've had to, ha- I'd have to think a little bit more about this, but I don't think it's irrelevant. It's just not exactly obvious um, the ways in which uh, the the colonial administration impacts what's happening today, um, but I, I'd imagine that it really is an important thing and, and I'll give it a little bit more thought and hopefully by the end of the, uh, the talk, I could we can come, circle back to this question and we could think about exactly this question.
2: Sure, and on behalf of Resolve, I will say there is an excellent report um, by one of our authors on sort of the historical legacy of sea bags that I, I'm sure we can put up in the chat. Um, Jacana, kind of the next questions to you. I'm going to combine a few of them, um, are specifically around the role of, of women in sea bags, um, and uh, there's two questions. Um, so one of the 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 uh, the the audience participants asked, you know. What are the sources of sea bag legitimacy, and how does that affect women's involvement um, in those sea bags? Um, and then, given that, um, how might the role of women in sea bags differ from that in other armed groups or conflicts? So, that's two questions the um, le- legitimacy of the group and how that affects women's involvement, and then how that involvement might differ from other armed groups.
3: Um, so I'll answer the second question first. Um, so the f- second question is how might women's participation in sea bags be a little bit different than in other armed groups? Um, and and there are, and I think these two questions are actually linked, which is why I'm taking one in, before the other. Um, so women's par- women's participation looks somewhat similar between sea uh, bags and um, uh, between sea bags and rebel groups and terrorist groups right women join these organizations pr- primarily when we're looking at the supply side so why women join these groups they look at they join these groups for personal protection for political gain in the same way that men do, in some cases, for material gain. Um, and so women join rebel groups for these reasons, they join terrorist groups for these reasons, and they sometimes join sea bags for these reasons. The biggest difference, I would say, between rebel groups, terrorist groups, and then bags separately is that are anti-status quo, right? They wanna push against the status quo and which often creates a revolutionary role for women. It allows them to transcend the status quo gender norms and maybe change and transform their roles. And so what that would mean is that there are departures from traditional roles that women have played in society and they have these new opportunities to do really interesting, innovative things. In some cases, that is to participate in violence, participate in you know, politics, that is to take on you know more... Um, agency within these groups in rebel groups, whereas we don't necessarily see that with sea bags because of their strong ties to existing traditions and existing communities. Because these come from communities that actually have an interest in upholding the status quo, which is preserving the community, they often don't create, when they have these strong links to communities, they often don't have... Um, or allow women to take on these uh, expansive roles. And when they do, they're retracted at the end of the immediate security need. And so, the one of the primary differences i think are the implications after conflicts for women that maybe they might do some of the same types of things during conflicts but the what that means at the end is a little bit different and so the question about the sources of legitimacy um this is a hard question only because sea bags is a very diverse term and it means a lot of different things um, and so when these sea bags are uh relatively unaffiliated with uh conservative or very traditional authorities women take on all kinds of roles however when the source of legitimacy is pre-existing traditional institutions so again as i've mentioned in the report um, when they're aligned with all male hunter societies secret societies when they're uh, uh they, women have uh less the women are less able to engage on equal footing as men within these sea bags. However, when they're not really as strongly aligned with all male traditions and patriarchal traditions, I would say, um, women are able to take on a lot more. Uh, I think uh, a lot more roles. And so the sources of legitimacy um, vary from sea bag to sea bag. But in some cases, they are rooted in traditions that have been passed down. Um, they're rooted in um, a culture. They're religion, rooted in a religion. And in other times they're rooted just in the moment. Their legitimacy comes from the fact that they need security, that a community needs security and uh and militias take um take the initiative to provide that security. And uh, so their legit- legitimacy can be longstanding and tied to long-standing traditions, or they could just be very ephemeral and that we, we need this right now. And so this is why you're allowed to do these types of things. And I think the, the reason for the CBAG in and of itself is going to have implications for what women are able to do. Um, and again, these the long-term impact of these changes that uh, are wrought by women's participation in these um, organizations.
2: Thank you. To kind of, I, I agree with you. The questions were highly related, and and you've done a great job of, of tying them together. Um, we have some very specific questions um, around Mali um, and the situation there, um, and primarily um, around um, the uh, the role of the state and the role of elite. Um, and the question. Uh, Rita, I'm going to ask it primarily to you, but Jakan, I know you're also an, an expert on Mali. But one of the questions is, as the uh, government in Mali is delaying elections and many are uh, boycotting um, uh, the Assis national, what will be the changing legitimacy of the state um, in central Mali? And what does it mean for the legitimacy of these groups, these community-based groups? So how is state legitimacy affecting
4: local legitimacy? I think that the answer the answer is simple. I think they continue to lose legitimacy um, towards the state because of what's happening. And uh, the elections obviously are not going to resolve the, the, the issue in Central Mali. But at the same time, also gives legitimacy to the seabag's including jihadist groups in central Mali and other parts of the country because then the narrative is look you know the elites are focused on this on other things on power influence rather than trying to address your issues to provide you with protection um the 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 focus remains security focused including some of the initiatives in central mali they are led by individuals who are security minded uh individuals and, and that con- continues to be um the the, the the trend uh rather than trying to address issues and as we saw in Farabugo, they the example of, of a town that was uh, that was controlled by by jihadists and uh including even that the state was present in the city in the town uh, and security forces they 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 couldn't they couldn't do anything for the local population, and uh, jihadist groups managed to 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 establish their, their, um, their themselves there without without being bothered. And uh, the local population are continue to see uh, that the state they cannot rely on the state to provide them with with the protection necessary. Uh, so, so the answer is is uh, is clear is that can, the state continues to lose legitimacy as we continue to see this, uh, this uh, political um, uh, issues in in Bamako. Um,
2: thank you, Rita. Um, I do. There are a, a whole group of questions that are related here, um, and so I'm going to sort of group them under the rubric of um, are sea bags good actors? um, Do they contribute to hybrid governance, hybrid security? Are they bad actors? Do they weaken? um, uh, uh, Do they further weaken fragility in these communities? Um, And along with that, you know, how can they be engaged? Um, you know, in these different roles? In what ways can they contribute to local and national peace building? Um, Can we engage them in DDR and SSR efforts? And if so, how should that engagement be managed? Any volunteers who wants to take that first? I can jump in.
3: Um, That's a really difficult question, and I guess it really, the answer depends on your in your imperatives. But I would say that uh, among the sea bags that the sea bags that I've examined, none of them are inherently bad actors. Um, A lot of them have good intentions, but they do bad things um, to further those intentions. And so I think that, you know, again, because some of these sea bags emerged for other purposes, um, as legitimate political movements in some cases, as hunter groups in other cases, um, as vigilante security uh, organizations to secure communities, we can't necessarily say that they're bad at their core, However, there is, it's unequivocal that they exacerbate security situations. They do not necessarily make things better. The question, though, is if there were no sea bags, or if certain sea bags were, uh, you know, demobilized, how does that improve security for the communities? Um, and so, it's there's no easy answers here. They're, they do bad things. However, in some cases, they do good things. Their intention to secure communities are good, but the way in which they go about it are absolutely bad um, and so the question is how do you leverage some of their positive sh- their strengths to to maybe do good and to lessen some of the bad things um and that is a really good question um, in some ways it's important to engage them in and i think it's it's important to engage them in peace building activities because right now they are some of the primary actors causing insecurity and so just like we would never leave a primary rebel group or a terrorist group out of well maybe a terrorist group but a primary rebel group out of uh, discussions of peace agreements you can't leave sea bags out of agreements um, and academic research has recently shown that um, where while we prioritize including um uh, violent extremist rebel organizations in peace processes we often leave out militias specifically pro-government militias and that's detrimental because they have the support and they have the means to continue um, conflicts even after they're resolved, right? And they have the means and the incentives to for so uh, so further instability even when we otherwise think that conflicts are resolved and so by sidelining them and excluding them from peace building um we only give them more incentives to soak so conflict so further conflict and so they have to be roped in the question is how and again how to harness maybe some of the positive things that they do and lessen some of the negative things and and that i will turn over to rita because i don't exactly know how to how do we do that yeah
4: yeah, I mean, they, they are good or bad, it depends who you ask. Um, the, of course, if you ask the communities that they protect, they're gonna say they are good because they are providing well all sorts of governance that the state is supposed to provide, but they are not providing. So they are good, but it's bad also because, they remember the, the name community based. So they represent only certain communities. They don't represent represent the population. So they, their interests might lie elsewhere other than the population elsewhere. So that is the bad news because they are looking for very, very specific interests to serve their own community. So that's why it's bad. And also it's bad because there, there is no legal framework and they are, they can they can behave the way they see fit and the way they want so there is no control so you can they one today they might be supportive of the state they might be uh, aligning themselves with international community under the banner of counterterrorism but once that is over tomorrow then it's a different story they might turn to other activities it could be illicit, illegal, etc. So that's that is the bad, the bad thing. So they are part of the problem, but also, as Jakana mentioned, they are part of the solution. How this is going to look like? We have to go beyond the identity label if we want uh, representation when we process into the to the uh, security reform and the DDR.
2: Uh, So on that note of ambiguity (laughs) around bags, which I think is a common thread throughout all of our research, um, I would like to thank um, on behalf of of our audience, on behalf of me, um, our panelists, for a terrific, terrific um, discussion today. I would like to thank our audience for a terrific set of questions. Um, And with that, Bogie, I will turn it over to you to wrap the session up.
5: Thank you, Lauren, and thank you very much, Jakana and Rita, for this fascinating discussion. My name is Boglarka Bożogi, and I am executive coordination and network manager at Resolve. It is so clear from this discussion that there is much more to learn about community-based armed groups if we want to better understand local security, conflict ecosystems, or violent extremism. By definition, of course, these groups are an integral part of the community, but not just as security actors. They are part of political life and civil society. They reflect the values and interests of stakeholders in the community and have the means to transform individual and group identities in conflict. Appreciating the intersectionality of identities, is especially key when looking at the diverse formal and informal roles that women play in conflict affected communities and in society, culture, politics, and economics. Getting involved in the security sector through armed groups can be an expression of agency or a means to survival. Women's involvement and visibility are often influenced by social norms and collective values, which of course has serious implications for security and development programming. Through events like this and publications like those of Florin, Jakana, Rita and many more, RESOLVE will continue to expand the knowledge base on community-based armed groups, bringing this unique perspective on conflict and peace building. We are committed to researching the gender and women, peace and security aspects to these groups to gain a more nuanced understanding of women's actions, interactions and relationships with conflict actors, the community, the state and the variation of their involvement and interests in and beyond security. So be on the lookout for new resolve network research reports in the coming months that will explore women's contributions in community-based armed groups in East and West Africa, based on field research by local researchers. We hope that these reports will add further contextual insights for future policy and programming. As always, Resolve is grateful for the longstanding partnership of the US Agency for International Development Africa Bureau throughout this and other research initiatives on Sub-Saharan Africa. In closing, thank you to our excellent speakers, to the amazing team Resolve, especially Michael Darden and the US Institute of Peace for making this event possible. Thank you to everyone for joining us today from around the world and learning together with our lead experts. We hope to see you at our next virtual event of the 2021-22 Resolve Network Global Forum Series. For more, stay connected through our website at resolvenet.org and via Twitter at ResolveNet. Have a great day and take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.